Welcome to the Doctors Hospital podcast. I am your host, Alexis Burrows, brand manager at Doctors Hospital. Today we are continuing our series um, for back to school health. Um, we again have Dr. Yashika Seymour, who is a pediatrician and pediatric critical care intensivist on the podcast. And today she's here to talk more broadly about childhood childhood health concerns. Um, welcome again to the podcast, Dr. Seymour. Thank you. It is great to be back. Okay. Before we get started, here are a few words on the new normal at Doctors Hospital. We at Doctors Hospital have been hard at work preparing for the new normal. From COVID screening as you enter the facility, to mandatory hand and shoe washing stations. To further limit contact, we have launched a concierge service that allows for pre-registration and in-car waiting. Scheduling for imaging, laboratory, rehabilitation and other services has also been adjusted. And our pharmacy is now offering curbside pickup and delivery. We're here to serve you with the same quality and care that you've come to expect. Doctors Hospital. Trusted and best care now. Isn't your health worth it? We are going to cover a very wide range of topics in this particular podcast. In our last one, we talked mostly about COVID um, and, you know, issues related to children in particularly and COVID and some of the, um, the, the questions, the concerns that kind of, you know, resonate around parents and kids and COVID. Today, we're going to go a little bit more broad. Um, and have, you know, some general questions about things that parents may want to look out for and be aware of when it comes to um, more general health concerns that their, their children may face. So I am going to start with probably one of the hottest topics outside of COVID when it comes to children um, and babies especially and health in the last few years, and that's vaccines. So <laughs> I'm, I imagine as a pediatrician, you've seen and heard and been privy to a whole lot of conversations, a whole lot of discussions around um, kids and vaccines. So I have a two-part question I'm going to start with. First, okay. the general question, are vaccines safe? And then the second question, which is, is there any situation in which I should not get my child vaccinated? Okay. All right. So to start with your first question whether or not vaccines are safe. Yes, vaccines are safe. Now, yes, we know that vaccine is a drug and everybody knows that with drugs, there are always side effects. Um, when it comes to the medical profession, what we tend to do is we look at the risk and the benefit. So if the side effects outweigh the benefit of getting the vaccine, then no, you shouldn't get it. But if the benefit that you get from taking the vaccine outweighs the side effects, then absolutely. And so there is a whole governing body um, it's called the Food and Drug Administration. You've heard about FDA. Oh, it's FDA approved. It's FDA approved. And so what this governing body does is it ensures that um, the vaccines are safe and they're also very effective. Once a vaccine is then approved by the FDA, 
with the Center for Disease Control, they monitor their safety. For us in the Bahamas, we have the EPI, which is the Expanded Program on Immunization. And what they do is they once again monitor the safety, um, the safetyness or how safe the mm-hmm. vaccine is. Okay. So I said all of that to say that, yes, vaccines are um, safe. I know there is a lot of debate on it. I myself have been involved in so many discussions about it. Um, so... I would encourage parents to just read from reputable sites when they are on their quest for knowledge and remember that you can always once again speak with your pediatrician. With regards to your second question in terms mm-hmm. of whether or not there's a, that, that you're, if there are some children that shouldn't get the vaccine, absolutely. So it is, once again, it's something you're putting into the child's body. And so if the child is known to be allergic to any component within that vaccine, and so basically they can have an alert of severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, like basically where they can't breathe, the whole system is shutting down, then they should not get that vaccine. Absolutely, it's a contraindication. In addition, if you have a patient who is immunocompromised or immunodeficient, so these are patients where their immune system cannot deal with, um, cannot adequately deal with live vaccines. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about vaccines, they could be live vaccines or um, such as MMR, varicella, and mist, which is the influenza, it's not the one you get with an injection, but the one that's inhaled through the nose, that one is considered a live vaccine. So if a patient is immunodeficient, then um, you usually do not give them live vaccines just because at that point, the risk of getting the live vaccine is too strong, too great, and then they actually develop the illness because the immune system cannot handle it. And so those are the scenarios in which you would not give a child a vaccine. But if you go, like every vaccine has an insert that talks about contraindications and treatment. But for the most part, they are tolerated by the general population. Okay. All right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I know that's, like I said, that's been a a heavy topic of conversation for a few years now. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a very good and broad explanation of, you know, how and why and you know the 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 situations where it might not be best okay so moving into a slightly different direction um you know asthma is another one of those things that can be um problematic in children um how do i know if my child has asthma how do what are some of the signs that i should be looking out for um to see if my child may potentially have asthma Okay, so if we think about the definition of asthma, it's, it's, it's a reversible and a recurrent airway obstruction. So basically, when a child has symptoms of asthma, they're showing signs that there is what we call lower airway obstruction. And so this is when, um, and if you think about a tube, and if you think about a, like a PVC pipe, if it's nice and patent, everything kind of flows through it very nicely. However, if you have a clog there, things don't flow very well. And so in order to get things to flow, you have to apply more pressure, you have to work a little harder. And so that's usually what the child does. You would see that the child has um, difficulty breathing, so they may be in distress, that we call it. Mm-hmm. You, As you have air flowing through a obstructed area, it makes a sound. It's almost like a, it's, it's a wheezing sound. Mm-hmm. So it's usually heard when the child is trying to get air out of their lungs. So every time they're breathing out, it'll be like, 
And then because it's an obstructed area, they're working harder. So you, you wouldn't usually see certain muscles working when a child is breathing. But if they have as- asthma, you would see those, what we call it the intercostals or the muscles around the rib cage. You see that they're working a little harder to try and get air to flow. And so basically, um, it will be a situation where your child would be in distress. You would see this and it would be something that you've seen happen more than once. Mm-hmm. And um, if the child is given uh, what we call a beta agonist, so something like Ventolin or Buterol, usually it helps mm-hmm. and it helps open them up. So they tend to they tend to respond to those treatments. So those would be the biggest signs with regards to um, asthma. There is something called cough variant asthma, where a child they may not have a lot of wheezing, but they generally cough a lot, and it's 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 a cough that it's a like a kind of dry mm-hmm. and it's not related to like a viral illness mm-hmm. and just a result of a trigger because with asthma there are certain things that when a child gets exposed to it causes this reaction where they have the obstruction right so um that would be another thing and then the third thing to just look out for is nighttime symptoms a lot of asthmatics can have um nighttime symptoms where whenever mm-hmm. and it once again it's environmental when the nighttime comes they start coughing a lot they start wheezing they just have some difficulty breathing um, and so that would be another thing that as a parent you'd want to look out for to see if it's breathing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So looking at another um, issue that may be, uh, pre- uh, well, not prevalent, but may affect children. And I, I'm going to ask this question and kind of have a, a, a follow-up question to it. Um, the first question is, you know, what are some of the signs of childhood diabetes and what should I as a parent look out for? And then the second part of that question is, um, you know, how much variance is there nowadays between um, type 1 and type 2 diabetes in children? Okay. Um, So when you talk about childhood diabetes, that usually is diabetes type Mm 1, which is where the child has an... um, has a deficiency or an absolute deficiency of insulin. When we talk about adult diabetes, it's type two where they put, they have insulin, but the insulin is um, the receptors are kind of resistant, mm-hmm. and so it's it's that it's not functioning as well as they, as they can. Now, in the case of type one, so that's the childhood one. That's the one where they do not have any insulin. Mm-hmm. How the um, patient usually presents is polyuria. So what that is, is they're passing a lot of urine. Mm -hmm. What happens is pretty much the glucose level in the blood gets high. When the glucose level in the blood gets high, you overcome your renal threshold. So generally, you shouldn't spill glucose into your urine. But Mm -hmm. with type 1 diabetes, the glucose spills into the urine. And so because of that, water follows. And that's why the child passes a lot of urine. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that they would present with is polydipsia. So obviously, if they're losing a lot of water, they're going to be very thirsty. Mm-hmm. And so um, you'd notice that your child wants a lot of water. They're always thirsty, always thirsty, always thirsty. And then because the body is unable to utilize the um, glucose, because that's what the purpose of the insulin is, you actually will see a child losing weight. Now, with um, type 2, which is the older people, usually those are overweight people, um, and that's what causes the insulin um, insensitivity, basically. But with type 1, 
it's actually because they cannot utilize the glucose at all because of the absolute absence of insulin. Um, they generally have weight loss. And because you're not able to um, use the glucose, once again, these children tend to be very lethargic and weak. So with regards to the signs that you would look for, you wanna it would be unexplained weight loss. Mm -hmm. It would be whether your when your child is very fatigued, they're just tired all the time, mm -hmm. and then the two um, where they are passing a lot of urine and drinking a lot of water. Okay. Okay. Um, with regards to so your second question, you wanted to know what was the um, well, I guess what's the variance because I know I I think. We typically think of, of diabetes in children as type 1. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we've been seeing more and more um, overweight and obese children and that sort of thing. Right. So are we seeing, I guess the question was more so, are we seeing an increase in type 2 diabetes amongst children? Because that's right. usually more tied to um, habits and, and dietary and exercise, right. lack of exercise, that sort of thing. Right, right. So, so right. So, what you're talking about, right, is what sometimes what we call um, Modi. So, it's maturity onset diabetes of the young. Mm -hmm. And so, this is where they're not the classic type one. They're actually closer to, <coughs> sorry, a type two. So, it's more related to, like you said, them being obese. Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to that. I can answer the question in terms of whether or not we're seeing more just because the diagnosis requires a lot of investigations that we don't do here. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> sorry, all of a sudden some links decided to, to come into the air. But, so, but basically, we believe that there is a resurgence, that there's an increase of it, mm -hmm. just because we don't see children, like we have children that require some insulin, but... Even when you, like I've seen it a few times, even when you give them the insulin, they don't respond the right way. And so we believe it's more insulin resistance. And so when you think about, oh, okay, well, they should be responding to this insulin and they're not, then you tend to entertain whether or not they may have another form of diabetes, which is not the classic type 1. Mm -hmm. And that's the category of children that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But in order to be able to give you numbers, I can't. I can tell you that I've, I've, I've speculated on it a few times. Right. We've tried to send off the testing, but unfortunately, we don't have any, any back that says that they may have that um, mature onset diabetes of the young. Okay, fair enough. Before we continue, here are a few words on Doctors Hospital's new Loyalty Advantage membership program. Doctors Hospital is proud to introduce the Loyalty Advantage membership program, or LAMP. LAMP offers medical service discounts to new and existing Doctors Hospital patients. With membership starting as low as $20 per month, LAMP benefits include fee waivers for insured patients, discounts on inpatient and outpatient services, access to free imaging services, and much more. For a full list of benefits or to sign up for LAMP, visit doctorshospital.com LAMP. Doctors Hospital, trusted and best care now. Isn't your health worth it? Okay, um... Kind of a natural jump off of that question, at least the the, the back half of it. Um, so my pediatrician has told me that my child is either overweight or obese. What should I as a parent do next? Okay. So these obesity is actually a very serious public health issue that we're facing, mm -hmm. especially as Bahamians. You know, culturally for us, if a baby is not fat, then somebody's doing something wrong. Like right. the, 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 the chubbier your baby is, the cuter your baby is, mm -hmm. 
And so that is something from a community standpoint that 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 we're dealing with, and we know that obesity obesity does cause a lot of um, medical illnesses mm-hmm. and has a very bad sequelae of negative um, diseases that can happen. But with that being said, if you are told that your child is obese, um, I think the best thing to do is to start to prepare a family-centered approach. Mm. This is not, obesity is not something that the child alone did or the child has to deal with. You have to recognize that it is a family issue. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that when we have a multidisciplinary approach and when we have a family-centered approach, the outcome is better. Mm -hmm. Um, with that being said, there are some situations where obesity may be a manifestation of something else. So there may be a medical condition, um, meaning your cortisol level may be just too high, something called Cushing's. So, or they may have been on medication that led to it. So that would be up to your pediatrician to determine whether or not that is the case. Um, but also, I would say it's important for the parents to speak to their child too to find out. Maybe the child could be depressed, too, in terms of a reason why um, they are eating more. Mm-hmm. And so if it's something like that, you basically have to start to think about a reconditioning mm-hmm. for, for the family where you want to develop better coping mechanisms. Most of the times um, with a child overeating, it is a coping mechanism for something else that's going on. Mm. And so I would say at that point, once again, communication with your child is key. And if you, that would be something that you definitely want to do. And in addition to communicating with the child, once again, because it's a family-centered approach, you have to speak with the family members, speak with um, the other children. Because I will tell you, it is very, very hard. And I see with kids who have diabetes, where the one child may have to be on a special diet, but mm-hmm. the other children in the household are not on that special diet. And so if the other children don't understand the necessity for it, then what happens is the other children end up giving the child that may have that condition things that they shouldn't be eating. Right. So we do have to make sure, like I said, the biggest thing is to work on your family-centered approach right. um, to deal with the obesity. Mm-hmm. Understood. Mm-hmm. Um. Another thing that we've been seeing a lot in in recent years um, are food allergies. Um, I'm not certain to the extent that we, uh, maybe you can speak to this, I'm not certain to the extent to which we've seen um, children in our environment uh, developing food allergies, but um, as a parent, what are some of the signs I should look out for that may indicate that my child has a food allergy? Okay, so because the food allergy is basically another immune response to the body's reaction to to the food protein, Mm -hmm. the first thing is you have to see some temporal relationship. You have to see the child ingested X and then this happened. Mm -hmm. And so the, the key then is to actually take note. Take note of the child's diet. Um, that preceded um, the symptoms, and the symptoms can be variable. You can have symptoms that occur rapidly, and this could be where a rash develops right away, the wheezing um, Mm -hmm. that we talked about with asthma, a child can actually have that. You can have something called angioedema, so you know the swelling of the lips, Mm -hmm. even swelling of the face, that can happen. And even something, systemic symptoms like just vomiting and diarrhea can also happen. But the key, though, is once again, you have to take note of the fact child ingested a particular um, protein, a particular food, and then that happened. Got a particular response. Um, 
Right, right. And it's just think about allergies. The patient with, can present as if there's just allergies. So the sneezing, mm-hmm. the wheezing, swelling right. of the lips. Okay. Um, so another interesting question. You know, as adults, I think a lot of times we tend to uh, and I, I would say, especially as a man, I would speak from my perspective, um, we mm-hmm. tend to take very long to decide to to seek any sort of treatment or care if something is going oh, wrong. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, from the standpoint of a parent looking at their kid, how do I make the decision between, so let's say something is happening with my child, how do I make the decision between whether I take them to their primary care doctor who may be a pediatrician um, an urgent care clinic or the ER? How do I make that determination from, I guess, from a very general standpoint? Because obviously there's a lot of different things that kids can present with. Right. But right. what right. should drive that decision-making process? Okay, so it's pretty easy if this thing happens like in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., there's right. only one thing that's open is the emergency room. Correct. But um, when it comes to the emergency room, if your child has anything that is life-threatening, mm-hmm. my advice is go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. You can call your pediatrician. You can call someplace else if you want. But if you, like, you have to start making your way to the emergency room if it's life-threatening. So that's something, like, where your child is um, who's not known to be asthmatic, mm-hmm. is unable to breathe, is turning blue, they're listless, they're weak. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you are concerned that for your child's life, mm-hmm. then I would say go to the emergency room when it comes to the urgent care clinic so we have we only have one urgent care clinic in the bahamas that i know of and that's the pediatric place Mm -hmm. um when it comes to the urgent care clinic the if it's after hours so meaning your pediatrician's office is closed Mm And it is not something that's necessarily life-threatening, but it makes the child uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the cough, a little a difficulty breathing, but they're not turning blue. They're still playful, mm-hmm. but you know when they play, they seem to have a little. They seem to struggle a little bit. Then that would be to go to the urgent care clinic once your pediatrician's office is not available. Mm-hmm. Um, now every pediatrician is different in terms of the services that they provide. Mm-hmm. Um, some pediatrician has the ability to give treatments, let's say if it's breathing problems, to give antibiotics and so forth. And so if your pediatrician does have the ability to do that, which most pediatric offices do now, and now I'm saying pediatric offices, I know with your question you were talking about, they could also be a general practitioner. Right. I can't I can say if a general practitioner's office has that, but mm-hmm. I know most pediatric offices do. And so in those scenarios, if it is during the working hours of the pediatrician and it is not life-threatening, then you can go to your pediatrician's office. Mm-hmm. With regard to the general practitioner, you would have to kind of know um, what their capabilities are right. and so once again it has to not be life threatening it has to be during the hours of operation mm-hmm. and um, and you have to know that they provide the, the the treatment that the child requires so for example a laceration not every doctor repairs laceration right so if it's a laceration, it's not life-threatening, but it is something that needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, in that situation, you would probably go either to the urgent care or to the emergency room as opposed to your primary care doctor. Okay. Um, an interesting, I guess, question to kind of tag along with that one. Um, and this is this is not meant to be um, patronizing, but 
what is the importance of maintaining a pediatrician specifically for your child as they grow? Because I think sometimes people mm-hmm. will have a pediatrician for, you know, vaccinations, really early age um, sort of care and that sort of thing. But like once the kid starts to get eight, nine, ten, they may shift towards a GP or a family medicine right. practitioner, which again, this is not saying that anything's wrong with that, but mm-hmm. um, what is, is what is the importance of maintaining a pediatrician for your child straight up through their development? Right. So that's a really good question because I cannot overemphasize how important it is just for you to have a doctor who knows your child. Um, mm. So in regards to being able to, like I was saying, in terms of identifying if the child has any abnormalities, if think about it, if a parent knows their child, they can tell very quickly when something is wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you know, my baby, uh, I owe this. I had a, a parent who told me, you know, my baby, he always eats, he eats so much, he eats so much, and then his the amount of food that he was eating or formula, I should say, that he was drinking, went down by one ounce, mm-hmm. one ounce. But that was something she knows her child does not do. Mm-hmm. And so she calls me right away. And knowing that, yes, that that's how that patient is, he always eats on time, on time. Mm-hmm. Then we recognize that, hey, this is the beginning of something that was that's, that's not normal. And so we were able to pick pick it up very quickly that mm-hmm. something was, and the child actually needed to be admitted and get treatment. Oh, wow. But so, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, normally that's something that would take, you know, a longer time. Let's say we're shopping around. You go to this right. doctor and this doctor. Oh, okay, you know, maybe maybe he's teething or maybe he's just mm-hmm. having a rough day or blah, 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 blah. Then it'll take longer for the diagnosis to be made. But in this scenario, because it was it was a patient that I had seen from birth and the mom was like, you know, he always takes five ounces, five ounces, five ounces. Mm-hmm. And today is the day he's only taking four ounces and he's never done that before. So, right. you know, it, it, it helps. It, it, it helps you to have a closer relationship with your pediatrician mm-hmm. where it's a partnership between the parent and the doctor mm-hmm. and then you're able to better care for your child as a team, as a family. Right. So you're able to do it a little better. Right. So that's very important um, when it comes to the relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess speaking to that, that specific knowledge of the history of the patient is very beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, I guess you never know when the difference between having that history and that knowledge and not could be the difference between, you know, life or death or, you know, right. being able to quickly return to normalcy or something being prolonged um, and there being value in that. Okay. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so going a little bit more specific, you know, from time to time, children have to have sh- surgery um, and obviously... That could be, and this is again is one of those questions where how it varies across age groups. But if my child is scheduled to have surgery, how do I get them prepared? How do I get them to feel comfortable? How do I get them ready for that? Right, right. So this honestly, it is not when it comes to peace for something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the biggest thing about surgery, and it, it varies depending on what the surgery is, is the fare. Mm-hmm. Like you have to think about it. You're taking a child out of their home environment. You are then putting them in hospital, which is not a normal environment. Right. You then have nurses coming in every three hours, every four hours to check their vitals, mm-hmm. which children don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
depending on which hospital the child goes to or what's going on, the parents may not be able to stay there. So it's a very scary experience. Right. My advice in terms of preparing a child for that is, is educating them. So if basically help them to, to anticipate, like you tend to fear the unknown as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so you want to prepare them for what is going to happen. You want to let them know, oh, okay, when they're going, they're going to check our temperature. They're going to check our, you know, say, mm -hmm. walk them through everything that's going to happen. If the mother is allowed to be there, then the mom will, will I just want you to know they're going to be there together the mm -hmm. entire time. Right. And if I can be there, then daddy or, or aunt so-so will be there right. and so forth. And then just let them know that um, everything that is about to happen, like, is not meant to harm them. Mm -hmm. But it's best in preparation for this procedure that pretty much um, needs to be done in order to make them better and stronger and healthier. So, so educating the child, I think, is the most important thing. And what I find when it comes to education or when it comes to care, once you tell them what is going to happen, that usually has the, the greatest benefit in terms of alleviating the anxiety. Because it is the unknown that's it. And, of course, right. it is the pain too because we do have to take blood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, depending on the child's age, you can kind of talk them through it or even right. make agreements with them. I, I, I want you to know that I have no problems driving children in <laughs> So, you know, just to say, okay, let's just go through this. And, you know, we're going to go through this as a trooper. And then at the end, you get a new book or, or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. You know, right. like that. Okay. Um, all right. So I have two, two more questions. And these are all kind of, you know, two and three part questions. So it, it, it's, it's a oh, meat to it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's short, but it's long. Um, okay. So the first one, and they're kind of related to one another. So the first one is, I think that my child may be having challenges with their development. Um, what, what are some of the signs that, you know, may make a parent feel that way? And then secondly, how do I confirm if they are having um, developmental delays or not? And then more broadly, what should I do if my child is experiencing delays? Or challenges with their development. Okay, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna go through it, but mm -hmm. I need you to repeat a few sure, questions. Sure, no problem. So your first question was, what do you do if you're concerned that the child is having um, issues with their development, challenges with their development? Yes. So the first thing I would say, this is actually where it is. We had talked earlier about the pediatrician versus the primary care doctor, like a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. This is where it's important for the pediatrician um, because you want the child to be seen by someone who is knowledgeable on the developmental milestones of children. Mm -hmm. So with every well visit, and I, like I said, once again, I can speak for the pediatricians because I'm a pediatrician. Right. Um, every well visit for the developmental milestones, we go through this thing. It's called the Denver developmental milestones. So say for example, um, if a child comes to us and is at and let's say it's four months. So by four months, if you put a child on their tummy, they mm -hmm. should be able to raise their chest off of the bed, at least up to the point of their nipples. Right. Um, and so that's where we look at their gross motor development. Um, we then also look at fine motor development. We look at language and social. And so each visit, when um, the doctor asks certain questions, that's telling us things about the child's development. So... If you feel as if your child is having some challenges, the first step would be to see the expert, 
which would be the pediatrician, to see whether or not what you are perceiving as challenges is truly challenges, right. or is it something where you're just comparing this child, Johnny, to Anne, and to say, oh, well, Anne was able to walk by the time she was nine months, and so you think Johnny is is, is delayed because right. he's not walking and he's 10 months. But it's quite normal for a 10-month and not to have started walking. That's not completely delayed. Okay. And so I would say go to your pediatrician. Now, um, the second you were saying what to do if there are some challenges. Right. Right. So if challenges have been identified, depending on what challenge that is that has been identified, you will then be referred to um, a subspecialist in that area. So, for example, if your child gross motor, fine motors is great, um, social skills are great, but the language, like you may just have a, a, a isolated or a single um, deficiency. Mm-hmm. Or impairment, and so let's say it's speech, then we would refer you to a speech therapist um, who would help with regards to the child articulating the words and communicating. Sometimes the child cannot speak for whatever reason and may have to learn sign language. The other thing, too, is you're also referred for a hearing screen first just to make sure the reason the child can't speak is because they can't hear. So depending on what that actual impairment is, what that actual developmental delay is, then you would be referred to the relevant subspecialist. Okay. Um, so I guess the flip side of that question then is, I think that my child may be advanced for their age developmentally. Um, so, you know, a two or three-year-old that is, from a language standpoint, at a, a five or six-year-old's pace um, mm-hmm. um, and other things of that nature. Is there a way to test them to see if they are advanced? And then if they are, what are some of the things that I should consider as a parent? Okay. So, right. So this is where we go into the category of where we're saying that the child may be gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where the child is advanced. On their, they have exceptional abilities in a particular area or several areas. And so mm-hmm. we then define them as being gifted. So some of the things that we look out for, and once again, it's the pediatrician. Um, that comes into play with this, um, what we would look out for is, like you appropriately said, is early language development. So Mm -hmm. if you have a two-year-old and that two-year-old is speaking in complete, complex sentences, Mm -hmm. then um, that is a child who could be considered gifted. Also, if you have a preschooler, let's say, who's starting to to read on his own and write um, without too much instruction, that is an, another indication that your child may be gifted. And so this this is the importance, once again, of a pediatrician, mm-hmm. um, just to be able to pick up these um, early signs mm-hmm. of a child that, um, that may be gifted. And the reason I think it's important, too, is because a lot of times, let's say, the, the other thing is that the child tends to be doing very well academically mm-hmm. and they may be doing well academically, but then they may say, oh, but the child is a bad child. But it's mm-hmm. not that the child is a bad child. It's actually the fact that the child is actually just bored right. because um, the classroom setting or what the, the teacher is doing is not stimulating them to the level that they are. And so it's very important to pick this up. Um, as soon as you can. And so once again, that's why it's important for your child to have a pediatrician mm-hmm. um, that we follow with who can, pick them, who can pick this up. And what happens after that is once we've seen that this may be a child that is gifted, what um, is done is that the child is then referred mm-hmm. to a 
neuro um, psychologist or school psychologist just for there to be a formal evaluation. Mm-hmm. And if it is deemed that this child truly is gifted, then I say encourage that as much as you can because you actually want um, the child to develop um, to develop that skill. Because you have a very special child that doesn't come by, that doesn't come about that often. Right. And so as a parent, um, it's, it will probably be a little stressful mm-hmm. just to be aware of that, not only for you as the parent, but also for the siblings. Because if you have a gifted child <clears throat> and you have other kids and they are not gifted, you may run the risk. You have to be careful to, to compare mm-hmm. the siblings. Um, because you're going to make the one who's not gifted feel very bad and um, can actually be um, counterproductive with regards to their development. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of, once again, have to prepare the family for the fact that you do have a gifted child. Mm-hmm. But your neuropsychologist and your school psychologist will help you with regards to the next steps from there. And if necessary, the child should be advanced. I wouldn't say hold the child back, um, meaning if if it is okay for the child to skip a grade, mm-hmm. then absolutely let them skip a grade because what you don't want is to force them to be at the level that you think they are supposed to be at. And in that case, that's when behavioral issues can then come about. Okay. Um, so what, just out, out of curiosity, what would mm-hmm. you consider a complex, complete sentence for a two-year-old? Okay, so when we think about a two-year-old, mm-hmm. a two-year-old, a stranger is supposed to be able to understand only 50% of what the, uh, the child is saying. A stranger, mm-hmm. so not mom, not dad, mm-hmm. I'm not cousin, I'm talking about just someone off the street. Mm-hmm. So basically where the sentence has all of the parts, so you have a subject, a subject, a predicate, you know, all mm-hmm. of that. So for a two-year-old to be speaking that way, so say for me, for an example, to say... Good afternoon. My name is Yashika Seymour. <laughs> it's raining outside and I want to go. I need an umbrella so that I can go outside. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it's a complete sentence. It's a complete structured sentence. Right. And on top of it, a stranger would be able to understand everything that the child says. Mm-hmm. What is supposed to happen is a stranger is only supposed to be able to understand 50% of what a two-year-old says. When they turn three years old, they're supposed to understand 75% of what the child says. Gotcha. But if you have a stranger who can say, because, you know, sometimes they'll be like, oh, what did she say? Mm-hmm. Then, then, then that would not be considered in the realm of um, gifted just yet. Mm-hmm. I think school is probably the biggest question that will come up for most people is, you know, mm-hmm. if my child is gifted and they end up becoming bored in school, how do I manage that? How do I ensure that I'm not holding them back? Um, in terms of, you know, the potential that could be there. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can rely on your neuropsychologist and the school psychologist to kind of help with that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's, you know, there's also a danger of the child missing the social development if we're working just with the academic. So it's it's, it's multifactorial and it's, it's, it's something that's very important to pick up and very important to recognize quickly so that whatever intervention is needed can be Right. I mean, it's important for, uh, um, I guess, adults and parents to remember that, you know, our kids are and can be as complex as we are. You know, they're, they're humans. Absolutely. They're, they're Absolutely. not as as singular sometimes, especially I think in our culture, um, we can kind of put kids into a very singular and specific box 
Um, and I think it's important for us to recognize that children are very complex. Um, and it's important to recognize that and value that, um, you right. know, as parents and as society in general. Um, just one more thing. You, you mentioned uh, neuropsychologists and school psychologists. Do we have people here that do that testing? So I will be honest with you with regards to me. Most I would I tend to refer to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we do have at least one school psychologist, mm-hmm. um, but but pretty much you'd have to kind of do the the research in terms of what your child has and right. what is available. But but in in most situations, referral. Okay, understood. Yeah. All right. Um. This was another very good discussion. Um, I know we we kind of bounced through a lot of different topics, but I think the idea was to speak to some of the the conversations and the topics that may come up with parents about their children, about um, things that are potentially common and uncommon that they may see in their in their children, um, and just giving them some ammunition to be able to identify and know how to respond. Um, to know how to engage their children if they are facing one of these particular issues um, and just, you know, balancing and navigating, you know, what it is to be a parent with um, a kid who may or may not be dealing with these sorts of things. Um, so I want to thank you again for joining us um, mm-hmm. and taking time out of your schedule to, to kind of go no through this problem. conversation with us. No problem. It was great to be, as always. Um, great discussions, and um, hopefully it helps somebody out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure it will. All right, thank you very much, and um, we look forward to seeing you back here um, soon. Okay, All right. thanks. Have thanks. a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to the Doctor's Hospital podcast. Uh, once again, we want to say thank you to Dr. Yashika Seymour for appearing on the podcast today. Um, we had a very interesting conversation about pediatric medicine and some of the signs and symptoms of some of the areas of concern that, that parents may have about their kids. Um, I hope that you, our listeners, had um, a lot of opportunity to gain some insight into um, what to look out for if you think your child may be suffering from one of these ailments. And we encourage you to listen in again next week. We'll be um, featuring two of our rehab specialists here at uh, Doctors Hospital talking about some of the areas of rehab that are specific to children, especially when it comes to the school environment, um, speaking to handwriting and speech language pathology in particular. So we encourage you to tune in next week. And as always, we thank you for listening and we invite you to like, comment, subscribe and share the podcast. And we'll see you here next week.